You are listening to The Gateway Church, located in Ferrisburg, Michigan. You can learn more about us by visiting thegateway.church or like and follow us on Facebook, where you can watch full services, keep up with all that is going on, and get connected. Just want to say thank you for all of your support. Um, I don't know where we're clapping, but we'll clap somewhere along these lines today. Um, but I just want to share a couple quick stories about our ministry over the last eight years. When we first went to Thailand in 2015, uh, we started campus outreach on the 10th largest university in the world. I had about 550,000 students on one campus. And the first week we got down there and started an English club, and this young girl named Da started coming to our English club. And over a few, several months, we started introducing her to Christ. And at the end of that year, she ends up becoming a believer, the first believer of her family. She's a Buddhist uh, from, from a Buddhist family. She comes into her understanding of Jesus Christ and begins to walk with him. And when we left Thailand in 2020, she was actually leading all of our house churches and all of our campus ministry. And I'm excited to tell you that recently she actually joined a missionary church planning team to reach ethnic minorities in her country. And it's a testimony of just God's goodness and God's faithfulness when we step out and trust him. And I want to say thank you for investing in that seed because we're seeing it reproduce in the lives of people all across the Buddhist world. Uh, For the last couple years, We've been focusing on a country in the Himalayan mountains that I can't say for sensitivity reasons, but there's some brochures out on the table out there if you want to learn a little bit more. Uh, But we've been basing in the Himalayas, and we had to start a business as our creative access platform uh, to get into the country. And so uh, we, we opened up this business, and the first girl that we hired is a, is a young girl named Nima, who, again, comes from a Buddhist background. And over the last year, we've been discipling her. She started coming to our house churches, and I'm excited to announce that our team was just able to baptize her a few months ago, and she's the first Christian from her family. And I just want to say thank you, because over these last 10 to 12 years, we've seen house church movements emerge. We've seen numerous people come into the understanding and knowledge and the goodness of Jesus Christ in their lives. That is not only changing their lives, but now they're going back and sharing Jesus with their neighbors and their families. And it's because of your generosity. And I want to say thank you. I'm excited to be here to help you guys kick off uh, your Missions Emphasis Month. Um, But I also want to share a little bit about my side of the world and the Buddhist world. Uh, We've been focusing on a tiny little nation in the Himalayan mountains. This is a country that has been completely isolated from the Western world for much of its history. In fact, they didn't allow their first tourist in the country until 1978. And even when we travel in the country, it costs 200, about $300 a day just for our visa to be in the country. We have to have a government-approved tour guide with us 24-7. We're not allowed to walk around on our own. And... It's a devoutly Buddhist country that persecutes believers, where the church is hidden underground, where there have been numerous Christians who have been put in prison or who have died all for believing in Jesus Christ. And several years ago, we started taking trips into this country, just praying about what it would be like to put a church planning team into this nation. And uh, in October of 2019, the World Missions, uh, we're with the Symbols of God World Missions, our World Missions director asked us, would we be willing to go to Bhutan for one month in order to see what it would take for a family to live in this country and to put a church planning team into this nation? And, I, and he graciously paid for the trip. It cost $25,000 for us to go to this country for one month. And that's, that's the two-star trip. That is not that, that luxury high-end trip, right? But just because of visa regulations and stuff. But we stepped out in faith and we said, you know what? We believe in God's church and we need to plant the church no matter the financial cost. And so every morning, my wife and our sons were about four and five years old at the time. We had no idea what we were doing or what was going to happen that day. But every morning before we left our house, we just held hands as a family of four. And we just said, God, we trust you. We know that you are in control, and we pray that you would open the doors that need to be opened. And over the next several weeks, God began to open up doors where I was meeting with uh, directors in government official offices. I was meeting with the dean of the only university in the nation. I was meeting with uh, cabinet members about how to put a business in this country so that our team could move in there and focus on gospel access and kingdom work. And one of the last days I'm in country, I'm with Nam Gay, my government-approved tour guide, and he's a devout Buddhist, grew up in this country his whole life. And we walk into a temple... And right in the middle of the room was an idol of a a deity or a Buddhist god. And it stood about 20 foot tall. It just hovered over the entire room. And we walk in and I look at Namge and I go, Namge, who who is this idol? Like, which one of the gods is he for you? And he looked at me and he goes, I don't know. I've never seen him before. And what I thought was interesting is I then watched Namge and he goes up to the idol and he begins to circle the idol, prostrating every third step. He begins to stretch his body out before this idol. And he begins to light the incense and ring the bells and do all the different forms of ritual worship that come with Buddhist practice. And one of the last things he does is he comes up to the foot of the idol and he kneels before it and he begins to pray. And as he prays, he pulls out his wallet and he leaves an offering at the foot of this idol. On the way out, I just start talking to him and I go, Namge, 
if you have no idea who this God is, why do you pray to him? And he looks at me, and I'll never forget it. He goes, I don't know. It was the only thing that I was ever taught to do. But I go, but Namge, you have no idea who this deity or who this God is to you. How do you even know what to pray for? And he goes, well, I always pray for three things. I pray for wealth, uh, prosperity, and fortune for my family, and I pray for health for my family. And the last thing I pray for is that all the animals will come back as humans. But I looked at him, and again, confused. I'm just like, but Namge, why do you pray those three things specifically? And again, he looks at me, and he goes, I don't know. It was the only thing that I was ever taught to do. And it was in that moment that the Holy Spirit spoke to me, and I realized the answer to the questions that I was asking him. The reason he does this is because I was the first Christian that Namge and his family have ever met in their entire lives. They have no access to the gospel. They have never heard the story of Jesus Christ because there's not one believer in their town of 150,000 people that have ever shared with them the good news of Jesus Christ. And it was in that moment that God spoke to my family and I and said, we needed to leave Thailand and go to this nation to lead the first church planning team. And so we've been living in a nearby nation due to COVID. They've been closed. We've been living in a nearby uh, Himalayan nation, learning their language. We're less than, we're, we'll be one of 10 foreigners who have ever attempted to learn their language. And we've been learning their language and working with other Tibetan Buddhists in this context, praying for the door to this nation would open. And I'm excited to tell you that it looks like that door is opening right now. We are currently submitting all of our paperwork and our team is getting ready as we pray that God going to open up the doors to this nation. And so I'm going to ask that you guys would pray with us uh, through that because I believe in God's church. I believe in God's church and I am a product of the local church. I didn't grow up in a Christian family. I didn't grow up as a missionary kid or pastor's kids. I grew up in this little town in Donville, Georgia. I was this redneck little kid that lived in a trailer park and my parents divorced when I was three years old. My dad lived two miles down the road from me, and I would go years without seeing him. My dad passed this year, and I haven't seen, I've only seen him once in the last 15 years. Never remember a time in my life where my dad hugged me or even said that he loved me. He just never wanted to be a dad. My mom, on the other hand, remarried five different times before I turned 15. There was physical abuse to the point where Child Protective Services were called and we were taken away on occasion. There was drug addiction, alcohol addiction, this complete chaotic environment. And when I was 16 years old, I came home from a trip with some friends, walked into my house, and it was empty. And over the next several days, it turned into about two weeks, and all the utilities started to get shut off one by one. They cut the phone, the power, the water. Finally, my sister came and told me that my mom and stepdad at the time had been arrested for drug possession. They posted bail, and they fled the state. I didn't see my mom for a year after that. I've been living on my own since I was 16 years old. But I always say my mom did one thing right. There was this little church in our town that had a bus ministry. And every Sunday morning and every Wednesday night, my mom would force me onto that bus so that she could have a free babysitter to go party. It was that church that changed my life. It was men and women of God just like you who became spiritual mothers and spiritual fathers to me. I love God's church. When people ask me why am I a missionary, it's because of God's church. It's because of Galatians 2.20 where it says, for I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but it is Christ who lives in me. And the life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. Someone please say amen to that because that is the good news of Jesus Christ. <laughs> Listen, I get, first, I get first service to pass, right? They're always stoic. They've been up since 4 a.m. They're grumpy. Like, you know, they need to get home and nap. Second service is the lively group, right? I need you to come on. Help me out here. Go, woo! Okay, come on. I, listen, I, I, I love jokes and I'll give you jokes, but if you just sit here and look at me, I'm just going to go all fire and brimstone on you guys soon, okay? So I need some interaction. But that's the good news of Jesus Christ. The church holds the good news inside of us, and God has called us to go into our communities and nations to find people to share that love with. And what happens is they come into the church, and then we send them back out. And I am a product of you. And so therefore, this morning, I am going to speak as if I am a member of this church because I don't believe that the church's sole responsibility is to pay missionaries and pastors to do the work of the kingdom, okay? We are called to be united. We are called to stand together for the sake of this community, this state, this nation, and to the ends of the earth. We are one family, and I truly believe that my family and I are just a local extension of the DNA and the heartbeat of what God is doing right here in Spring Lake, Michigan. Amen? Amen. Okay. <laughs> Over the last few years, we've developed this idea. My family and I, like, we, we've partnered with the Symbols of God missions as we focus on the Buddhist and Hindu world, this world that's been neglected that so many people don't really have an understanding about. And we've developed this idea of a big dream. If we could pray anything, 
what would it be? And so we've developed this idea of a big dream. It's, it's, a, it's, it's a dream for Buddhist peoples, if you will. And we've, we've taken this smaller and then we've kind of scaled this larger. Because for me, the big dream is to be one of only a few foreigners who have ever been approved to live in a country that completely isolated from the Western world and persecutes believers. The big dream to me is sitting around my living room and seeing people who have grown up worshiping idols and in temples now turning their eyes to their heavenly father. The big dream to me is standing out on the plateaus of the Himalayan uh, mountains and seeing some of the most remote villages in the world and knowing that their help is coming, knowing that their help is going to come because the church is going to stand united for their sake so that God can receive the glory. The big dream to me is seeing people who are ransomed by the blood of Jesus, walking as sons and daughters of the God Most High. That is the big dream to me. And so we've made it our goal to realize a multi-generational, a multi-ethnic church planting movement amongst every people group in the Buddhist world. And I know what you're thinking, that's a big number. And you're right, it, it's a pretty big number. It's over a billion people, 83% of which who have never heard of Jesus Christ, who have no access to the gospel. It is to see persecuted countries like Bhutan, Myanmar, Vietnam, North Korea, Cambodia, all of those countries opened up so that the good news can be proclaimed and the church can be planted in those nations. And I believe that it is my job in pursuit of this big dream to equip, to connect, and to mobilize advocates, intercessors, donors, and everyone and in between the church to reach the Buddhist world. It's a multi-ethnic, multi-generational team. We have people from all ages serving in all the Buddhist world. We have people being sent out now from Latin America. From We have Colombians, Bolivians. We have people from Romania. We have Costa Ricans all joining our team because we stand united under one commonality, Jesus Christ, and the proclamation of his mission to the world. But I know what you're thinking. This is logistically difficult. It is financially difficult, and it is geographically difficult. And you're right, it is. But I learned this little phrase when I lived in Latin America for a couple years. Lo imposible no existe con Dios. And it means the impossible does not exist when God is with us. The impossible does not exist. And too many times in the church we think in these impossible scenarios when we need to step out in faith and just realize that nothing is impossible when God is with us. And we've taken this idea of this big dream and we've realized that if we are really are going to see this big dream, if we really are going to see a movement of church planning teams unleashed in the Buddhist and Hindu world, then I've also realized that the enemy is not going to sit idly by he is not going to allow this to happen. He's not just going to sit comfortably and watch this happen. When you step out in faith and you work and walk in obedience of God, the enemy will come after you and attack you. And so this morning, I want to take you on a journey into the Buddhist world. And sometimes as missionaries, we come in and we give you the highlight reel of all the great things that have happened. I want to do the opposite this morning. I actually want to bring you into the realities of what some of our team members face and what our brothers and sisters living in these countries face. So is it okay if I, if I do the opposite this morning and not give you the highlight reel of missions? Are we good? Oh, I love this. Now we're verbal. Um, the title of my sermon is called Standing on the Dividing Line of the Empires of Darkness and Light. You guys, I, Pastor Ben told me that you guys are encouraged to watch a message by David Platt uh, this month, right? Have you guys seen this? Okay, who's all watched it? If you watched it, raise your hand. I love you, bro. You're the man. Everybody else. Come on, you've got four more weeks, three more weeks, so let's watch it. Because I, it's, it's, it's based, David Platt's detailing the story of Adoniram Judson. And I actually listened to it last night, because how could I come in here and be a part of your missions convention if I wasn't going to commit myself to being a member of the Gateway Church? So I watched this video last night, I watched this message, and he details the life of Adoniram Judson. And it was perfect timing, because I'm watching, this, I'm watching his life unfold, and I see that he goes to what is currently known as B, uh, Myanmar, uh, Burma. And he is the first missionary to be sent out of America to the nation of Burma. And he's responsible for translating the Bible into the Burmese language, the same Bible that is still used 150 years later. And he, saw the, and he started to see disciples converted, and he's responsible for the first churches that we see in modern-day Myanmar, a devout Buddhist nation. And over that course of the 30-plus years he lived there, three of, his wives, three of his wives died on the mission field. Not at the same time. He married one, died the second. Sorry. <laughs> Realize it. He also lost several of his children on the mission field during that time. And one of the last things he says right before he, he returns to America, he says that after years of living in spiritual darkness, after years of seeing the gospel sowed into these nations, or into this nation, he said that the church, that you and I stand on the dividing line of the empires of darkness and light. That's how he concluded his career. And so this morning, 
as I prayed with, uh, about what to share about, I felt like the Lord put a prophetic voice in me. And I'm not calling myself a prophet by any means, but if you look at the role of Old Testament prophets, they usually lived on the outskirts of town. And whenever the people of God lost sight of the mission that God had given them, the prophets would come back into town to give them a missiological or theological realignment back to what God was calling them to do, is to help them to get unstuck when they got complacent at times. And I felt this morning that that's what God wanted me to do here this, uh, today. Um, but it was usually when the prophets stayed too long that they were getting run out of town with pitchforks. So I'm going to leave in a couple hours, and you guys won't see me again. Um, but I do realize that some of the things I say this morning, I think they're going to challenge you, and hopefully in a good way. But some of you may not necessarily like what I'm going to share this morning um, because it's not the highlight reel. And so I was told that if you have any complaints or criticism, they're going to put Pastor Ben's cell phone number up on the screen, and he would love to personally hear all of those uh, this morning. Uh, but before I start, I want to do two things. First, I want to put our theme verse up on the screen behind us. Uh, so whoever's doing the media, you can throw that verse up, um, and then you can take the morning off because I'm actually going to leave this up there for the remainder of our sermon. And it's a simple verse from John 1.5 where it says, And the light shines in the darkness. And the darkness has not overcome it. And I want that to resonate behind me as I bring you into the dark realities of the Buddhist world. The second thing I want to do is I actually want to open up in a prayer. And it's this old Anglican prayer that I truly love, but I, it's simple, but yet I think it's fundamentally relevant for us today. So can we just bow our heads and close our eyes? Father, what we know not teach us. What we have not give us, and what we are not make us. Amen. It's in the Buddhist world that I've seen young, I've seen mothers that will bring their sons to the monastery, and they hand them over into a life of temple worship as young as two and three and four years old. And it's in that moment that when they give their son over to the monastery and that young boy makes the vow to become a monk, his mother knows that she will never be able to hug him again because in Buddhist belief, you're not allowed to, a female is not allowed to touch a male monk. And so she hands her son over into these monasteries knowing that she'll never be able to uh, touch him again, much, and she may not even see him again. It's in these places that people harm themselves, they cut themselves, they scar themselves, all out of fear of these local deities and demons and, and, and spirits that are all around them. It's in these places where I've seen literally an entire village will come together and they hold all-night rituals where they stand around and dance around this fire reciting Buddhist mantras and alms as they seek to call up the spirits of deceased monks from the flames of the fire. It's in these places that remain untouched from the gospel and from the good news of Jesus Christ. It's in these places where Satan has been worshipped day and night for centuries and he devours every ounce of their worship. The majority of the Buddhist world still lives in spiritual darkness. And you and I, we stand on the dividing empires between darkness and light. Buddhism 101. I'm a little nerd with this stuff, so I'm going to take you on an adventure through Buddhism real quick. But the fundamental belief of Buddhism is that life is all about suffering. Everything in this world, whether material or immaterial, will lead you down the path of suffering. And so as a, a natural consequence, uh, uh, the second fundamental belief in that then, because, well, now you have to remove all suffering from your life. So think of this. We think in terms of suffering as, well, of course, anger, frustration, those things can lead us down the path of suffering. But where a Buddhist would take it one step further is they would say that even the fruits of the spirit are, are signs that can lead you down the path of suffering. Peace, love, joy, and hope. All of those things can lead you to suffering because they attach you to this material world. And so what they would say is that if you are guilty of loving your wife or loving your husband or loving your children too much, then you are leading yourself down a path of suffering. So therefore, they will try to remove themselves from everything in their life that can cause or lead them to suffering. That is why it's not uncommon for men to abandon their wives and children, to leave them on their own so that he can then go and join a monastery because he's got to pay the alms and do all the different rituals and, and, and get rid of the path that led him to suffering. It's not uncommon for a woman, uh, mothers to abandon their children so that she can go and join a nunnery or go and worship at the temple. Because if she's guilty of loving her kids too much, then it leads them down the path of suffering. And then on top of this, you've got this mix of spirits and local deities, this animistic worldview where they believe that lands and objects are possessed by these spirits. And so they put up these spirit houses everywhere and they call on the spirits to come to them because there's this cosmic play where there's good spirits and bad spirits and they're dueling it out for the soul of the person. And so they have to do everything they can to appease the good spirits and to rid themselves of the bad spirits. 
And then the final culmination, the end of Buddhism, we've all heard this word, it's called nirvana. And a lot of times we often translate that as heaven because that's the closest thing that we can think of coming from a Christian worldview. But did you know that in Buddhism, nirvana actually translates to nothingness. It's to not exist anymore. Buddhists believe that they are a drop of water and once they reach nirvana, they will return to the body of the, the ocean and they will cease to ever exist. Their name will be written out of existence forever and ever. That's the end goal of Buddhism. What a sad day it's going to be in Revelation 2015 where it says, and if anyone's name was not found written in the book of life, he was thrown into the lake of fire. Our greatest day, church, is when we stand before our heavenly father and he reads aloud our names. But for our Buddhist friends, their greatest day is when they will be written out of all of existence. Their name will be forgotten and no one will remember them. How Satan has distorted God's good plans. But that's what the enemy does. He takes God's good plans of creation and he distorts them and he twists them for his own gain. Since Adam and Eve, God has taken the good things of creation. Satan has taken the good things of creation. He has tried to twist them and distort them so that he can receive the glory. And he is leading millions and millions of people astray because he's teaching people that, oh, any religion is good. You can find God in all of these other things. Oh, oh, you're good. You have a good heart. And he's leading people astray. And he's taken people away from what God has designed so that he can receive the glory. One of the saddest things I saw was I was in a country a few months ago, a Buddhist country, and I'm in this temple that's about 700 years old, and I'm watching this young woman, and she's standing before the idol, and she's going through the different alms of worship, and, and one of the rituals is they have to put their hands together, touch it to the sky, then their head, their heart, and then they stretch themselves out before the idol. They prostrate before the idol, and literally, I'm in this 700-year-old temple, and the wood floors uh, below her feet have knee prints and footprints indented in them because they've been sanded away from thousands and thousands of other people coming and prostrating and worshiping in that exact same spot and over and over she's trying to build good karma trying to appease this good god to help her so to speak and one of the saddest things i saw is i'm standing next to her and her three-year-old daughter's just looking at her watching every move that she makes and just watching her mom go through this repetition over and over and over again and finally i look and the three-year-old daughter finally ends up putting her hands together and she puts her hands to the sky to her head to her heart and she the three-year-old daughter stretches out before this idol and it just broke my heart because I realize, like, this woman has never met a Christian. This woman and her daughter are repeating a cycle that has been repeated for thousands of years because no one has ever showed them another way, because their country persecutes Christians, because there have been Christians who have disappeared in the middle of the night, and they have never shared the gospel with her because she's never had access to a Bible or to the message of Jesus Christ. There was no one who could share with her. Church, you and I stand on the dividing line between the empires of darkness and light. There's all these folk practices that happen in Buddhism, and one of those practices is uh, a thing called Sakya, and you can see the gentleman on the left in that photo, you can see those tattooed markings on his head. That is actually a practice known as Sakya, and it's a form of tattooing where, unlike a traditional tattoo where you go and pick out your design and then find a tattoo artist to draw it onto your skin, this one's actually done in a Buddhist monastery. And you actually go and you see a monk who is believed to have divine powers or magical powers. And you will kneel before him and he will begin to read your, spirit, your aura and the spirits will tell him then what to place on your body. You don't have a choice with what he, what he engraves on your body. And he takes a long bamboo needle with a hammer and he begins to etch into your skin. And he's usually etching one of two things. One is either an old poly or Sanskrit spell in order to cast the demons away and bring you good luck. Or the other one is some sort of Buddhist imagery that will repel any demons around you. And I, I, when I first got to Thailand, I, I met a, a gentleman named Caro who's grown to be one of my closest friends. And he's not a Christian at this point. Uh, I've later been able to share the gospel with him. But when I first met him, he had actually just received his first second. He had one tattoo. Now his entire body is covered head to toe, just like this gentleman over here. And I want to read you his experience. And just keep in mind, at this time, he's not a Christian. He had no understanding of Christian terminology or anything like that. But this is what he said several years ago. He said, after receiving my first sakyant, my tattoo, my spiritual master walks up to the throne-like chair in the center of the room. He asked me to kneel before him, and as I knelt at his feet, he took the golden mask image of a demon, and he placed it on his head. He says, as soon as he put that mask on, he began to speak in an unknown language, and his voice became unrecognizable. After several minutes of chanting these mantras, he then takes the mask off, and he places it on my head. He placed it on the head of my friend, Carl. And he goes, at that moment, I could feel the spirit of protection enter my body. The spirit overpowered me as if I had no control. 
His strength became my strength, and, and I could feel his voice coming through my vocal cords. And he says, before I knew it, the spirit took over. And he now says that those spirits act as his source and protectors in life. There is a real darkness that is happening in these parts of the world, and we may not understand it, we may not want to read about it, but there is a real spiritual darkness that is hovering over parts of this world. And so earlier this year, when you, when you have this second tattooing style, the idea is that over time, the energy from that, from that spirit wears off. And so every year they have to come back for a festival where they will gather together in order to call the spirits to re-energize or to re-encharge their powers of their tattoos. And so earlier this year in March, I actually had a chance to go to this festival. And as we walked up to the grounds, there was over 10,000 people in attendance at this festival. And they were all sitting on the parking lot floor surrounding a makeshift temple that had been filled with monks and, and different deities and godlike figures. And we're walking around looking for a seat because the festival actually lasted close to a week. And we came in the final couple hours to see the culmination of the event. And we're walking around, and I, entered, I meet this nice Thai gentleman in mid-40s. And he asked us to sit down and share the mat with him. And we begin to talk with him and eat fruit. And we're sitting there. And then they start doing the Buddhist mantras come over the megaphone. And all of a sudden, I look. The gentleman who, who motioned that we could sit down next to him, I could literally see his eyes roll to the back of his head. And he just starts shaking uncontrollably. And he starts getting really, like, just aggressive. And he's just starting to grunt, going, Ugh, And it's getting louder and louder. And then all of a sudden, he looks over at us, and he's like, Ugh. And I looked at my friend, and I'm like, we chose the wrong seat. Like, we didn't know what to do, right? Like, I'm not a super missionary. Like, in that moment, I'm like, I, I don't know what I just did, right? But we went, and all of a sudden, I realized like, it didn't matter where we were sitting. We started to see these things happen over and over. We're right behind me, this guy, he just screams as loud as he can, and he jumps to his feet, and he's shirtless, and he's covered in these tattoos, and he's just beating his chest over and over, and he's screaming louder and louder every time he beats his chest. And after several minutes of doing this, he finally just takes off running to the front of the stage. And we just started to notice this over and over that people just started running to the front of the stage, and they're surrendering. They're giving their lives over to these demonic spirits. And my heart just began to break, and I just began to pray, and I'm just like, Father, forgive them. And like I'm telling you, I got really emotional. Like everybody's like aggressive and all this stuff. And I'm like tearing up in my eyes because I'm just like, Father, forgive them. Because they have no idea what they're doing. Because most likely they've never heard of you. And this is the only thing that they've ever been told. And I just started to pray and I started to feel convicted. And I just began to repent. And I'm like, Father, forgive me. Forgive your church because we have not gotten to them in time. Your message has been around for 2,000 years. And there's still billions of people who have no idea who you are. And I just began to weep, and I just began to pray, and all of a sudden, the, the ceremony comes to a culmination where they bring up the divine, the grand master. He's known as the divine monkey. He's believed to have the most powers out of everyone. And they bring him up on the stage, and all of a sudden, he starts chanting this mantra, and all 10,000 people just started to recite it in unison. And it was like just this weird sound that was coming out. And... Um, and after several minutes of doing this, a young novice monk comes up and he takes the microphone from the Grand Master and he looks at him and he goes, this is our teacher. He's the good teacher. He used that language. This is the good teacher. We must follow him because he has now showed us the path to God. He shows us the path to Buddha because he's the one who knows the way. And as my Brian was brought to Luke 18 in that moment, and I just started to think there's this conversation between Jesus and the rich young ruler. And the rich young ruler is going up to Jesus and he says, good teacher, what must I do to be saved? And Jesus, like if you read that verse, it's interesting because he immediately challenged this. It's the, the rich young ruler. He rebukes him and he says, why do you call me good? There is no one good except God alone. And my mind is brought to the scripture because here's this monk telling everyone that he's the good teacher. He's the one to enlightenment. Praise God, church, that we know who the good teacher is of this world. Amen? Come on, give me a bigger amen than that. Praise God. Praise God that he sits on his throne in heaven because he alone is good. And that is good news for you and I. That is the good news of the gospel. And that is good news for every people in a Buddhist country right now. Satan is deceiving this world because he wants the credit and he wants the glory. But we serve an almighty God who is on his throne and praise God for that. And the ceremony ends and there's like this big celebration where all 10,000 people end up running to the front of the stage. And I actually had to fight my way through the back of the crowds and I turn around and watch and they're blessing all the people with holy water that the monks have been praying over for a week. And it just ends in this ceremony. And it was just this really dark moment. And I kind of just want to preface this, like sometimes pastors and missionaries, we're, we're known for telling good stories, right? Like one, one of my more famous missionary friends, he said, well, I've never told a story that God couldn't do. And I'm like, 
but does that mean God did it? Like, you're, you're like a little confused, right? And like, I just want to say that because I'm not embellishing this story. Like I told you that, that bus ministry that came and picked me up when I was a kid. I don't know if you guys know anything about this, but that, that was a Southern Baptist church bus, okay? And if there's one thing the Southern Baptists don't talk about, we don't talk about missions, and we definitely don't talk about spiritual warfare, right? Like, spiritual warfare to us was the pastor saying he was going to preach for four hours, and by the time we got out of service and got to the local all-you-can-eat buffet, the Methodist guy had stolen the last pork chop. Like, that, that's spiritual warfare where I come from, right? And then I move up to Michigan, and I get invited to this little Assemblies of God church, and my first Sunday there, and I'm not kidding you, like, I, I, the worship starts, and I'm sitting, like, in this side of the church, and this guy just walks down the aisle, and he comes up right to the front of the stage, and he's got a quill in his back, like that little thing you put archery arrows in, and he's got prayer flags in there, and when they start that kick drum on the, on the drums, he just pulls out those prayer flags, and he just starts waving them around, right, and he's running back and forth, and i just like, what in the world is happening? Like, we didn't do this in my Baptist church, right? And... Uh, and I, listen, I know some of you, that's you, right? And, and I love you, but I'm going to be honest. You people scare me a little bit if that's you with the prayer flag. I know you love the Lord, and I love you for that. But sometimes I'm a little uncomfortable in those settings. And, and so I'm telling you that because when I was in that environment, I'm not embellishing it. I want you to know that there is spiritual darkness in our world. And we, we can't just turn our eyes and pretend like it's not there. There are people who are living in fear and oppression because they've been lied to. Because they, and they, they surrender their lives to these good gods that are really just disguised as demons. And so I just want you to know, church, that we stand on the dividing line between these empires of darkness and light. You and I stand in the middle between darkness and light. We talk about this idea of unreached people groups, right? Like that, that famous scripture verse, Go and make disciples of all nations, right? Like, we love that verse when it comes to missions convention. But that verse, when it comes to nation, the word actually translates to ethne, ethnic people groups. And so we have this world that's got these 200-plus countries on it where they've drawn these geographical maps that separate these countries, right? But inside of that, we've realized that there are actually thousands and thousands of people groups who actually maybe don't identify within the geographical border. They have their own language. They have their own cultural identity. In a lot of cases, they have their own religious ideals. And so in the 1970s, in the 60s and 70s, we coined this term unreached people groups, people groups who live in these geographical borders, but they may remain untouched from the gospel. Because we all know like countries like China where there's a billion people, that's great if you have missionaries on one side of it, but at the other side, if there's still thousands of people groups who have never heard the gospel, then we know that we have to send missionaries to them, right? So we've coined this term unreached people groups. And then in the 1970s, churches and missions agencies started to make that the goal. They wanted to see the mass proclamation of every people group in the world. And so they started to send out missionaries. Our brothers from Latin America started to go to these places and the global church started to focus on these unreached people groups, the predominant, and, and they mostly reside in the Muslim, Hindu, and Buddhist world. And so we started sending out missionaries to these places. And in fact, we were so successful that within just a few years, out of the total number of unreached people groups, they saw a 15% decrease because the church was being planted and the gospel was being proclaimed and Christians were being risen up and they were making disciples of their, of their neighbors. And it was just this amazing testimony of what God was doing in that time. And they said that if we keep this up, if our, if our uh, progression continues to go at this rate, we could see the mass proclamation amongst every people group by the year 2060. Think of that. That's within our lifetime, right? That's within 40 years. We could see the mass proclamation of every people group. And, it, you know, Matthew 24, 14 says, And this gospel of the kingdom shall be preached in all the world for a witness unto all nations, and then the end shall come. Right? Like, if we believe that verse, what it's saying is that once the gospel is set amongst every people group, then we may see the return of Christ in that moment. And so that's what missions agencies were trying to achieve. But something happened over the last 20 years. We saw that 15% decrease in the total number of unreached people groups. Did you know that in the last 20 years, we've now only seen another 1% decrease in the total number of unreached people groups? We slowed down our pace so much that now they say it's going to take another 517 years before we see the mass proclamation of the gospel. Something that you would have seen in your lifetime will now not be seen until your great, 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 great grandchild is on the earth. My question for you, church, is what happened? How did we go from seeing the, the potential of the return of Jesus and the mass proclamation of the gospel within our lifetime to now having to wait 517 years? What went wrong? And I don't know if I have a good enough answer for you today. I wish I did. But what I was immediately brought to was a C.S. Lewis book called The Screwtape Letters. And we see a conversation happening between the junior devil and the senior devil. 
And the junior devil says, remind me again what the plan is. And the senior devil says, our plan is very simple. That is just to create so much noise in the world that Christians can no longer hear the voice of God. Might I propose that one of the reasons we have slowed in our progress to see the mass proclamation of the gospel is because we've been distracted by outside noises. Maybe it's because we've lost sight of what God has called his church to do. Because we're seeming to raise up a generation of Christians who want the blessings of God without the obedience that comes with being a Christian. We've raised up a generation who want the great consumerism where we can get anything and everything that we want, but we don't want to walk in the obedience to make disciples of all nations. Maybe we've we've taken a sideline view of this and we're like, you know what? If I put money in the offering plate every September and October during the missions month, then the missionaries and the pastors can do the job that God has called me to do. I believe that we've been distracted. And there have been political turmoil. For some reason, I've made it my ambition. We, you know, missionaries, we come back every four years to raise funds. And for some reason, over the last 12 years, I seem to hit the fundraising every time there's a presidential election campaign in America. And I don't know if you noticed or not, but that's a very tense environment to be a part of. But what I've come to realize is it seems like Christians care more about arguing for their political party than they do about putting their identity in who they are in Christ. And I just want to encourage you, like, my identity is not in this nation, and I love this nation. But you know what gets, and, and, and I have the American passport, and that allows me to go into nations that no other country would get to. But at the end of the day, my identity rests in who I am in Jesus Christ as a son of God most high. Because my God is higher than the name of any president earthly king or dictator. It doesn't matter if Bhutan has a king who persecutes believers because my God is the one who sits on the throne. Amen? Amen. We need to realize that God is asking us to put our identity in him because we stand between this tension of darkness and light and God is asking us to stop putting our faith in anything and everything and to start to get back to the missiological realignment that he has for his church because 2,000 years ago, he looks at Peter and he says, on this rock, I will build my church. And then he says, and the gates of hell will not come against it. We have to stop allowing the gates of hell to defeat us. And we have to walk in the authority that Jesus Christ has given us. Everybody prays, we want revival. I want to see a revival. I want to see a revival too. But you know what I've realized? Some people say they want to see a revival. And all that means is they want to get together for a couple weeks of nonstop services. And they want to have these good emotions and these good experiences. And I get that. Like, those are great things. But you know what I see when I look at the history of revival? I see a move of the Holy Spirit that defined a generation, that broke sins of bondage, the chains of sin around them, and it brought a missiological realignment that changed a generation. You look at the Great Awakening, you look at Azusa Street, you look at what happened in the hippie movement. It wasn't something that lasted for two months. No, it was a mark on the next generation that decided to change the culture around them. That's the revival that we need. That's the revival that the church needs right now because our mission has never changed. We've just been distracted by the noises in this world, and it's kept us from following what God has called us to do. All right, what time is it? We got to get to the sermon first. I got to go to the verse. Oh, we still got three more hours. We're good. We're going to get out of here early today. John 1, 5. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. That's the parallel. Darkness and light, nothing else. There is no third option. All we see is that there is darkness in this world and there is light in this world, but we get the promise that darkness will never overcome the light. Jesus says about himself in John 8, 5, he says, I am the light of the world. What does that tell us? If there is going to be light in this world, who is it going to come through? Jesus. If there's going to be light in our government, who's it going to come through? Jesus. If there's going to be light in our schools, who's it going to come through? Jesus. If there's going to be light in your marriage, who's it going to come through? Jesus. But look at how he finishes that verse. He says, I am the light of the world. Whoever follows me will never walk in darkness, but they will have the light inside of them. So now we kind of change that script a little bit. Yeah, if there's going to be light in this world, it comes through Jesus. But I love what Jesus does with that light. When we follow him, he then takes that light and he puts it inside of us. And what that means is we are the image bearers of Christ and we represent him everywhere that we go. Christ was represented. Christ was, that light of Christ was in the lives of those men and women in that little Baptist church back in 1989 when I walked through those doors and I met Jesus Christ. It was because the light that was inside of them. 
And that same light is called to be inside each and every single one of us. If there is going to be light in our government, if we know it comes through Jesus, but God is using us to bear that light into the nation. I really believe that God calls Christians into four areas, government, ministry, military, and business. Think about if Christians were equally representative in all four of those areas. Think of what this nation could be like if we had godly men and women serving in government, if we have godly men and women serving in the business world, if we have godly men and women in the military, we would represent the light of Christ to this nation. We would represent the light of Christ to nations all around this world. God is calling us to be active members in the church. We cannot become a sideline Christian. I'll say it again. I feel like maybe you didn't hear me. We cannot become a sideline Christian. I'm telling you, I'm begging you to understand this next thing. The goal of the gospel was never for you to receive forgiveness of sins and then take a seat in the chair. Sorry, I'm not pointing at you. I'll point at <laughs> I got to do this opposite thing. That's not the goal of the gospel. The goal of the gospel was always about three things, salvation, proclamation, and glorification. The goal of the gospel was about finding salvation through Jesus' death, burial, and resurrection so that we could then go into the world and proclaim the glories of God to the nations around us. That's what it means to follow after Jesus. Do not lose sight of what God has called you to do. God has chosen to put a light inside of you. And listen, I know there is evil in this world. I shared a lot about it today. And, and Satan does have powers. I do believe that 1 John five nineteen says that the whole world lies in the power of the evil one. There are powers that Satan has that are real and evident. We see this in the Buddhist world. We see this even in the Bible. We see it in Job. We see it when Jesus is tempted. But I also know this, and this is good news for us. God maintains the ultimate power. God maintains the ultimate power. Satan and God are not out there dueling it out for the universe in this tug-of-war struggle of what's happening. No, God's, Satan's power is only through the sovereignty and permission of God. Because when men fell and the curse of sin came on, God considered it wise to give Satan these powers. But at the end of the day, God maintains ultimate power. And God, in that same sovereignty, God has chosen you and I to stand between darkness and light. We represent the light of glory to the nations around us. And sometimes, I, I just want to take a second, sometimes I think we give Satan way too much credit. Okay, I, I do believe that Satan has, has powers, and I do believe that they're evident. But sometimes we just make excuses and give Satan way too much credit. For instance, Satan did not make you late for church this morning. Starbucks made you late for church this morning. Now, if you went to Big B, that might be Satan. But I'm just, no, I'm sorry. I love Big B. I did this, I did that joke a couple weeks ago, and there was a guy who owned four Big B chains in the congregation, and I had to go repent after. I don't know where I'm at now. <laughs> Satan's not the reason why we don't get on our knees every single morning and start off our day in prayer and worshiping the God most high. Snooze button might be why we're doing that. God has called us to be active members in his kingdom, and we cannot keep making excuses. We cannot get distracted by ideologies, by politics, by culture wars, because we are engaged in a spiritual battle, and we bear the light of goodness to darkness. And we have to hold firm to the truth that God has called us to be set apart as we represent him to our families, our communities, and the nations around us. And sometimes, if we are honest, we would just admit that maybe we have been distracted. Maybe politics has caused a distraction for some of us. Maybe selfishness has caused a distraction for some of us. I know that's the case for me so many times. There are times when we have to repent and realize that we've lost sight of the mission of God. And sometimes we need an outside voice to come in and bring a missiological realignment to put our eyes back on Jesus Christ and the good news that he has for all the nations. We bear the image of God inside of our hearts as we carry the mission of God across our lives. The image of Christ is inside of us and God has called us to be active participants in his plan of global redemption. And I'm gonna tell you in that story this is something I've really been praying through and God's been working on me. Sometimes when, as a young missionary, when you're called out, you know, you, you kind of buy into it a little bit. You're like, I'm going to go and save the nation of Thailand. I wasn't really that great in America, but for some reason, like that 20 out, four hour plane ride is going to turn me into the Apostle Paul, right? And then you just come off a year where everybody's like applauding and they'll stand for you when you come up on stage. And if we're honest, like some of us missionaries, we we kind of like that, and, and I'm going to repent to you because I, I used to like that. You guys didn't stand for me like other churches, but that's okay. Um, but I've realized 
there's no heroes in the kingdom of God. There's only men and women who are obedient to their heavenly father and they walk in humility. Gateway Church, you are not the hero of this community. You're not the hero of anybody that you witness to. And that's a good thing because we are flawed and messed up. But what God is doing is he is inviting us to be in the continuation of his plan of global redemption where he alone is the hero. And he alone is worthy of all of our praise because he alone is worthy. We sang it today. It's all about God. It's the name of Jesus that is higher than the name of Buddha. It's the name of Jesus that is higher than the name of Allah, Krishna, Vishnu, and what other God you want to throw in there. It's the name of Jesus that is higher than the name of any president, dictator, or earthly king. It is all about King Jesus. And we have to walk in victory, knowing that there are dark things in this world, but God is with us, and we are called to be light against those. We stand between darkness and light, but we're on the winning side of that because we bear the light of God to them. That is what God is calling us into. The church is where I was saved and discipled. People just like you invested in my life. Then 15 years ago, I walked into this crazy little Pentecostal church on the east side of Michigan, and they spoke missions into my heart, and they discipled me. The church sent me before, but today I'm asking that you would send even more. Please don't just think that your part is putting money in a faith promise, thinking that you can pay someone else to do the job that God's called all of us to do. Still give, though. We need your money. Um, <laughs> sorry. I think the worship team, can we, can we have you guys come back? I'm not going to preach three hours like I wanted to. Um, we can have the worship team come up. You can't have missions without the local church. Right? We know that missionaries can't go unless a local church sends them. But I've also realized that they will not have the local church unless missionaries go to them. So this morning, I'm going to ask that you stand with me. And we may stand for a couple minutes. That's okay. I've been standing like 30 minutes, so I'm going to ask that you guys bear with me for a few more minutes. But today, I want to invite you into an invitation, not just to give a faith promise. I think there's people that are coming over the next few weeks who will do a better job than that than I will. But I'm going to invite you into an invitation to pray for your missionaries. And I don't want this to be like a flippant prayer where it's like, well, God, I pray you bless them. I want it to be a prayer like what we see in Ephesians 3 where Paul is on his knees praying for his brothers and sisters. I want you to pray as if it's your sons and daughters who are being sent out. I want you to pray as if the kids that I'm taking with me are your grandkids. Because we're brothers and sisters in Christ. You're aunts and uncles to me. And maybe not through blood, but through something far better. Salvation through Jesus Christ. And one day we're going to be standing in heaven. There's this beautiful picture in Revelation 4 and 5. And it's the throne room of God. And we see all these creatures and these myriad of saints and martyrs who've gone before. And they're all crying out with one voice. Holy, holy holy. That is going to be a beautiful day when you and I are gathered together and we stand before our God and we cry out, holy, holy, holy. But you know what? We're going to be standing there and off in the distance, we're going to hear millions of our brothers and sisters from Latin America and they're going to be singing the same thing, but in their native tongue, santo, 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 holy, holy, holy. And then we're going to hear, and there's going to be people behind us. And it's going to be this weird, high-pitched tone from Thailand. And they're going to be singing, bodhisut, bodhisut, bodhisut. And then my prayer is this nation we go to next, where there's only been a few hundred thousand people that actually speak the language. And very few foreigners have ever even attempted to learn it. But because of what you decide to do here today, they're going to find you in heaven. And they're going to stand next to you. And in their little Tibetan dialect, they're going to be worshiping. Thumpa, thumpa, thumpa. Holy, holy, holy. So this morning, we're going to do a song. I'm going to ask that you would take a step of faith. We all love good sermons that leave us feeling really good. 
But this morning, I'm going to ask that you step out in faith, and I'm actually going to make, ask you to make a physical commitment to pray for your missionaries over the next 30 days. So we've lined up these prayer cards. This is every missionary that the Gateway Church supports is on the front of this stage right now. I'm going to ask that every family would take one of these and that you would commit to praying for your missionaries as if they were your sons and daughters, your grandsons and granddaughters going to these places. I'm going to ask that you would pray. Get on your knees and pray for them because we are one family united under the commonness of Jesus Christ. And we are all called to go into the nation and make disciples. And so as we worship, I'm gonna have you start coming up and I'm gonna have you grab one. And after everybody's seated, if you still see a couple more scattered on this stage, can you, your family, maybe come back up and grab one more if, if, if we don't have enough people to grab one. But let's every family, if right now you could just step out and come up here and just say, I'm going to commit to praying for this missionary because we're a gateway family and we are joining together in God's global mission. So if that's you, just start coming forward right now. God, we just worship you and we thank you. God, we thank you that you have invited us into the continuation to see your good news spread to every nation in the Buddhist Hindu world. God, I pray that the Gateway Church, God, would be the city on a hill that will not be hidden. God, I pray that the light from this church would never be hidden from the people in this community as their impact today will make a global difference in heaven. God, we love you and we thank you. We've got a few more cards. Maybe a couple people want to come back up and just commit to praying. But let's not leave one missionary not being prayed for this month as we go into this worship song. What an incredible launch to Missions Encounter Month. You know, I love how we had over today uh, 90 missionaries up here. And that means if there's none of them up here, that means there's going to be 90 missionaries this month that just made a, people who made commitments for 30 days that you're going to be praying for them. But maybe you didn't receive a card this morning. So here's uh, what I want to encourage you with. If you're on our Facebook group page, um, I know there's missionaries that get posted there weekly. So maybe uh, your commitment will be, I'm going to pray for whatever missionary pops up on that uh, Facebook group page. But as we go today, I want to encourage you to be the light. Be the light where you go. He... Pierce referred to it, but I think one of the lost arts as when it comes to our Christian walk is we forget to proclaim the name of Jesus, and we lose the fire of God when we forget to proclaim his name. So when you walk outside these doors, proclaim his name wherever you go. Let's pray. Jesus, we just thank you. Lord, we thank you for this launch to Missions Encounter Month. Lord, we thank you for the word that you spoke through and God, I pray as we go and we leave uh, this building, Lord, we wouldn't leave you in here. But Lord, we would go and be the light to the world to which we are called. And God, I pray as we go, would you go before us, around us, and protect us. In Jesus' name I pray. Everyone said amen, 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 amen. Thank you so much for joining us today. We'll see you this week or next Sunday. Thank you for listening to this week's message from the Gateway Church. If you'd like to find out more about our church, such as service times, giving, and ways to get connected, visit us at thegateway.church.